in God's providence. Uh, our series in Acts aligns with Resurrection Sunday. This is a great uh, resurrection text, and so we will continue to look at Acts, and we'll also consider uh, the resurrection of our Lord this morning. So let's pray before we go to the Word. Uh, we'll be turning to Acts 13:26-29 today. Let's pray. Oh, we bless you, Father, for you have mercifully brought us into new life through the resurrection of your Son. Even now you are guarding our faith, preserving us so that we will one day be brought into the fullness of our inheritance. Uh, the chief part being, of course, living in your presence. Uh, your word is life. It's in your word that we find Christ, our Lord, crucified, buried and raised for us. Would you plant deep within us the abiding word of the imperishable seed that we might enjoy eternal life. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. <coughs> Remind you by way of context, Paul and Barnabas had traveled from uh, Cyprus north into what is now Turkey or uh, Asia Minor, and they've made their way up in inland to Antioch of Pisidia, and they are in the synagogue, and this is kind of in the middle of Paul's sermon to the Jews in the synagogue at Antioch. So Paul says, beginning in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. There's a phrase that I use every now and again. I don't know if it's original to me, but uh, it's high stakes catechesis. 
What do I mean by that? I should explain that. What is catechesis? It simply means training or instruction. It's a high stakes catechesis, high stakes instruction. Um, when I raise, as I raise my kids, I'm not going to let them go their own way. I'm not going to let them decide for themselves. I'm going to catechize them. I'm going to train them up in righteousness. And the reason I call this high stakes is because if I'm wrong, I'm hurting them. I'm harming them. It's almost abuse to lead them in the wrong direction. So it's high stakes catechesis. As Paul says, if we are wrong, we are of all men most to be pitied. We're fools. On the other hand, if we're right, or rather if God is right in his word, then we have the enjoyment of what we saw last time in Acts, what Calvin called our principal and only felicity, our chief and only joy, which is Christ. We've obtained Christ. So it's high stakes. Either we have the fullness of joy or we have the fullness of pity. So what reason do we have as Christians to think that we're right, that, that the scriptures are true, that the resurrection is true? Um, Paul presented Christ in the last passage we read as, as this chief joy of the Jewish people, their Messiah in this, the last passage we studied. And now he's going to supply his reasons. His reasons stand or fall on what we celebrate today, on the resurrection. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. Paul begins this portion of his sermon in in 26. (coughs) He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So what he's going to say is a message of salvation. And notice here, there's a bit of uh, what some people call an inclusio which is is a bracket on either end of a passage, and it tells you this whole passage is about this topic. So we have at the beginning here, this is the message of salvation, and if you jump down to 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So this whole message is about a message of forgiveness, a message of salvation. And for Paul here, there's no... Uh, hesitation. There's no apology. There, there's no kind of, in my view, this is how this works. Or, or from where I sit, this is how I understand it. Or, or here's what has helped me. Paul is proclaiming the message of salvation. God, G- Jesus Christ of Nazareth equals God's Messiah equals the one and only way to salvation. You can imagine a small band of soldiers making their way through the countryside on a road and they see someone coming to them from a distance. And this man, when he arrives, is a messenger. And the message he gives to the leader is a piece of intelligence. He says, if you stay on this road and and go on to the left at the fork up ahead, uh, there's an ambush waiting for you and and you're all going to die. However, if you take the right hand fork, You'll be safe. And in fact, there's villagers there and they have a meal planned for you. They're in support of you. The apostolic gospel, Paul's gospel, leaves us with this kind of fork in the road. We must go to the right or to the left. One way leads to life and joy. One way leads to grief and death. 
and that way of salvation, the, the right road, the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Um, and if that's true, of course I'm not going to leave it up to, to my children to go their own way. Right? I'm going to decide what God has said and I'm going to lead them in that way. Of course I'm not going to just let my friends and family wander off. I'm going to urge them, I'm going to plead with them to take the, the path of life. And in a society where that juncture in the road is perceived not so much as a fork in the road, but as a traffic circle with about a hundred spokes like a bicycle wheel. And any one of these ways is a potential way to your own personal Shangri-La. This two-fork message is not received very warmly. But this is the message. Jesus is the path to life. He is the one road to salvation. That's why Paul says that he, uh, that Jesus has been, or he is preaching the message of salvation. That's why he says, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's why this, this bookend in this passage, uh, kind of the book covers, if you will, tells us this is a message of salvation. So, what about the contents? Uh, uh, what about the pages in between? Why? Why should we believe this Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the path to salvation? It will help to consider, I think, from the Jewish perspective a little bit, Paul's original audience. Think from this first century Jewish perspective that you're longing for a particular kind of Redeemer, someone who will come and save you from the Roman tyranny, a sort of superhero figure, if you will. Someone to come and liberate the Jews, to restore the fortunes of Israel. That's your mindset. Now, one would expect this type of Messiah to arrive on the scene and form a kind of of entourage of the best of the best, right? The best of the Jewish leadership, the men with power, the men with social status, with wisdom, with strength, we might also expect him to gather to himself men with, with military prowess to come in and conquer the Romans, to, to oust Pilate, to come and sit down in Jerusalem. And of course we'd expect him to be a, a man of the people, a man of popularity, someone to amass a following from the people of Israel, and, and especially those men and women with status and resources to support the mission of, of ousting the Romans. But this man, Jesus, from Nazareth, of all places, collected really some just dudes from Galilee, some fishermen. And his following is this sort of needy group of Galileans. Galileans aren't a steamed group of people. Instead of smoozing the upper class, he consistently angered the people of status in the Jewish community. When he did finally go to Jerusalem, he just made more enemies. He broke into the temple and and destroyed the money changers, the, the very financial resource of Caiaphas, the high priest. Then he finally comes before Pilate, and rather than ousting him, he hardly says a word. Instead of taking on the Romans and taking his seat on the throne of David... Instead, he was cast out of the city walls. He was pinned to a Roman cross. So, 
The point is, what could possibly be attractive about this Messiah from their perspective? Surely he was just another in a long line of promising duds. Notice here, Paul kind of admits this. He says in 27 that those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers condemned him. They didn't affirm him. They condemned him. They and Pilate executed him and laid him in a tomb, assuming that to be the end of yet another messianic failure. But why was Jesus rejected at Jerusalem? Paul says, because they were looking for their Messiah instead of God's Messiah. They were looking for their Messiah according to their preconceived notions rather than God's Messiah according to Scripture. God had uh, revealed plenty in the Scriptures which would identify Jesus as the Messiah. But Paul says here, and this, this is terrifying, let this be a warning to us. They did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. The scriptures which are read every Sabbath identify Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't recognize him. Perhaps on Good Friday you read uh, the, the story of the crucifixion account. Um, and in, in Matthew, when Pilate washes his hands, and he says, his, his blood be on you. The chilling response of the Jerusalem crowd is, his blood be on us and on our children. Scriptures are read every day on the Sabbath, and this is their recalcitrance. His blood be on us and our children. Now, as always, we can't stand and wag our fingers and shake our heads at the Jews. Uh, we are just as disposed to ignore the plan of, and testimony of Scripture and to follow the idols of our own hearts. <coughs> I always appreciate the distinction Martin Luther makes. He, he calls uh, this distinction, there's a distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Now, we might think theology of glory, that sounds good. The theology of God's glory. No, it's really a reference to the theology of our own glory as opposed to the theology of suffering. Every Christian has to relearn the theology of the cross because we're born with the theology of glory in our hearts. A portion of an article from Gene Veith, he says, A theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always to grow If a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. And if he experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems, and if he is not healed, then he is often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith and sometimes questioning the very existence of God. On the other hand, but Luther pointed out, when God chose to save us, he did not follow the way of glory. He did not come as a great hero king, defeating his enemies and establishing a mighty kingdom on earth. Rather, he came as a baby, laid in an animal trough, a man of sorrows with no place to lay his head. And he saves us by the weakness and shame of dying on a cross. 
Those who follow him will have crosses of their own. If anyone would come after me, let him take himself, uh, deny himself and take up his cross and follow, follow me. So you see the distinction there between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Even as believers, we tussle with the glitter of the theology of glory. For us, naturally, spiritual experience trumps truth. The works that we and others do trump simple faith. Comfort trumps suffering. Fun trumps contentment. The point is really this, is are we looking for our Messiah or God's Messiah? Are we really setting our expectations according to the scriptures which are read every day on the Sabbath? Or are we blinded by our own expectation? Now, all of this perfectly addresses the Jewish audience of people who were consistently swept away into a theology of glory. Uh, Paul addresses this in 38 and 39, so now at the end of the passage. And yes, I know it's Resurrection Sunday, and we're, we're getting to that part. The Jews were, were always drawn to this theology of glory, the structure of their religion, uh, the order, the beauty of the temple, the, the priestly vestments, the security of the sacrificial system, circumcision, food laws, 613 laws. It's all there for us. It, it builds the structure for us. And it's tempting to be, make that the source of our faith. From Galatians, we know, and remember Paul here is in Galatia, we know these people struggled with this, finding their identity as children of Abraham in the works of the law rather than in Christ. But Paul here, he directs them to Christ instead. In verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Um, this is a rare instance where I think the ESV misses the mark. Uh, I think the Net Bible, and I had Michael put it there below the text in your bulletin for you, gets it better. Because the word is not freed. In the Greek, it's justification. This, he's talking about justification. He says that they're justified. So I'll read 38 and 39 again in the net. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this one forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by this one, everyone who believes is justified from everything which the law of Moses could not justify you. Hear that echo of Galatians in those verses. The law of Moses uh, was an important administration of God's covenant. It served its purpose, but it was never meant to be a means of providing anyone with a means of right standing before God. The law of Moses was never meant to be a ladder by which we climb the rungs up into the presence of God. It was never meant to be a dress by which we put over our muddy and leprous appearance to make ourselves pretty before God. That's not the purpose of the law of Moses. Paul here, he really strikes at the heart of the actual human problem. It's not that we need more and better moral guidance. It's not that humanity needs to learn to just love each other and get along. What we need is salvation 
from the just wrath of God. We need a Savior who will be able to bring us into God's presence by washing us from the stain and filth of sin and adding to our account a perfect righteousness so that we can truly enter into the tent of God, so that we may ascend to His holy hill. We need to be justified. We need to be declared righteous. That is the real human problem. Sin in a way to get to God. And that's what Jesus accomplished in his life and death. And that's what was validated on that Sunday morning when God rose him from the dead. (coughs) Which then brings us to the good news that we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday. Verse 32, again, we hear Paul say that this is good news. And we bring to you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Uh, don't take this analogy too far, but Paul's a bit like a, a salesman when he does evangelism. He's con- utterly convinced, I have what you need. Remember Acts 17, he's walking through the streets and then he goes to, to these men and he says, I noticed you have an unknown God. Funny, I have, I have it. I have what you need. And in this passage, the same thing. Remember the good news of salvation and liberation you've been waiting for. I'm telling you, it's arrived. I have what you need. Only unlike a salesman, Paul's always right. He actually does have what we need. And he's not selling anything. He's offering the greatest gift ever given to mankind. Another consistent theme that runs throughout Paul's evangelism. The whole presentation stands on the foundation of the scriptures and hinges on the resurrection. The historical fact of the resurrection. Paul is is pleading with these people. He's saying, look into your own scriptures and see Jesus fits perfectly. He's the only one. He is the Christ. You want an exalted Davidic king? He's come. He's been exalted to David's throne and you're missing it. You're missing the point that the Messiah's exaltation would be forged in the fires of humiliation. That his glory would come through suffering and that the scriptures predicted his suffering, his death and his resurrection. So he's saying we we have what you need if you have eyes to see it. He begins by pointing them to Christ's exaltation to the throne of David in the scriptures. In verse 33, he says, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. For Paul, very often, uh, Raised means more than just raised from the dead. It means raised to exaltation. And we see that here from the quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That Jesus is the exalted son of God. Reminds me of of Psalm 110 as well, where uh, David's own Lord 
was claimed, or Jesus really, the Messiah, was claimed to be David's own Lord and the one who would come as the royal priest, the true Melchizedek. And he would come and reign on, (coughs) uh, excuse me, he would reign and, and conquer all of his enemies and they would be placed under his feet. That, and that's kind of the kind of exaltation the Jews were expecting, isn't it? Someone who would come and crush the enemies. And Paul says, he has come, he is here, and he reigns. And by raising him from death, the lowest point of humiliation, to exaltation, God has fulfilled the promise made to the fathers, to us, their children. Next here, Paul narrows in on the resurrection from the dead specifically. In verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So these these are two quotes, one from uh, Isaiah 55, 3 and one from Psalm 16, 10. And these quotes remind them of the covenant God made with David, that he would raise up for himself a king to sit on David's throne. (coughs) And then Paul uses this familiar line of reasoning, the same argument. He doesn't even give attribution. I don't know, should we ding him for uh, plagiarism? (laughs) He uses the same line of reasoning as Peter did in his sermon at Pentecost, where he says in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So he's saying, look, David spoke the words, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But that was not about him. He died. He rotted in the grave. David, in in Peter's sermon, he says, his tomb is still with us. David's tomb is still with us. He's right there. This text is about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's about the one who would be raised from the dead. No one else other than Jesus fits this bill. So resurrection for Paul is the clincher. Resurrection proves it. It proves that he is the promised Messiah. That Jesus of Nazareth is is the Messiah of Psalm 2, of Isaiah 55, of, of Psalm 16. He is the Davidic king. If the resurrection happened, Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what it comes down to, isn't it? That's the why in the road. If the resurrection. You know, Christianity began as a small sect of Galileans. Uh, as it spread across the globe, it really made a major impact wherever it's gone. I mean, here we are across the globe. It's influenced culture at large. It's brought a message of salvation and hope to millions of people. Many people from all around the globe believe this man, Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, is, is David's king. Is the savior who brings forgiveness and ushers us into the very presence of God. And all of that, that, that whole thing is like a grand cathedral, a lovely cathedral on the outside that's empty, dead, dusty, filled with cobwebs and rats and mice and spiders if the resurrection of Jesus never happened, if it's not a historical fact. 
But if it's true, then the lungs of goodness, truth, and beauty that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ are filled with the breath of God. Is it true? Is the resurrection true? Uh, historians have done great work in providing and proving, proving that most, the most likely explanation for the historical evidence is that he was raised from the dead. Those studies are worth reading. But I'll leave that to the historians for now. And here's what I want to know. Do we believe the utterances of the scriptures which are read in our midst every Sabbath? Do we believe the breathed out word of God? If we have ears to hear the breathed out word of God, we will hear the testimony of God through those who saw a living, breathing, fish-eating Jesus. Those men who say to, to even us through the scriptures, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So is it really high stakes catechesis? If Jesus has been raised, it's not. It's high yield catechesis. Paul says, let it be known. Let it be known. Lay aside all doubt. Rejoice. God's Messiah has come. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And he reigns on high on David's throne. Amen.